Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and I am the fifth consecutive generation of educator in my family. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have been a player and coach of volleyball for over 15 years. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking Nitro Merlin Milk Stout from Firestone Walker Brewing Company. And uh, the technician in me uh, loves following directions. And this can has some directions that I'm unfamiliar with. It says, in big red letters, it says, stop, pour hard into the glass. Step one, invert the can three times, which I am currently doing. Third time right there. Okay, surge pour. This is from a can, not a bottle, which is a little different for us. And it's just like, dump it into your glass. Just dump it. Let it go. Hard, that's, fast. Don't avoid the happening. head. Like, yeah. That's happening. Oh, my gosh. I'm You can scared. see it mix. And, oh, my gosh. It, it, it perfectly filled the top of my pint glass. And then it says, watch the cascade so we can see the bubbles popping from the bottom. The beer is crawling up the glass. The top looks super foamy and super creamy. It's kind of magnificent, this experience. That's gorgeous. They, that is the exact experience of, like, a milk stout. That was beautiful. Uh, and so I'm actually going to let that head sit for a little moment before I start drinking it. So we've been planning this episode for several months now because we wanted to take a chance to try and discuss how do we deal with controversy in the classroom. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in the news these days, both in politics, but also you and I are both uh, science teachers. And so in science in particular, there's a lot of topics that it can be contentious and can uh, evoke some strong emotions from our students and from other stakeholders. And so the issue is, how do we or even do we deal with some of those issues as teachers because school should be a safe place for all students and so we want to try to deal with how should teachers navigate controversy or contentious topics with their students to kick off this discussion we are considering an article published in education week by uh, dr diana hess the problem with calling scholars too political uh with the sub tag education scholars have a responsibility to the public good the argument of this article and the argument of dr hess in general because she does a lot of a publication on this topic is yes we should not only not only can we talk about controversy but we should be talking about controversy with our students and so the crux of her argument we should, but there's a there's a little bit of restraint that goes along with we should. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a short piece, and so it very uh, it's uh, it's a easy read to, to to get to where she takes us. One sense of obligation that she proposes is that because institutions invest in creating these experts, that experts should then teach respecting their expertise, and that when experts opt out of the discussion that robs those institutions from gaining the equity for the development of those experts. That's perspective on our own professional development that I don't know that everybody shares. I think to myself, I spent a number of years in school, I did my homework, I lost sleep, I was writing papers, I was trying to synthesize from lectures, and I was paying for it. So what equity does the public have in my own expertise, especially for people who are working two and three jobs to pay for their degrees? Uh, what is, what, what's the underlying, 
what's the substance of that claim? I don't disagree with that claim, but it I think it bears at least explanation for what equity the public and society at large has uh, put into the development of experts when we're cutting checks for our degrees. Like, they're not giving them away. Though this isn't directly discussed in the article, uh, I believe that uh, the specialization of and division of labor uh, is a cornerstone foundation of our advancement as civilizations. If an individual is going to invest themselves and be supported uh, in order to become an expert and to gain uh, uh, a mastery understanding of something that is outside the experience of, of most people, then that investment should be acknowledged and recognized. Well, and that that cost is only one piece of the pie, so it's it's sort of cost sharing, if you will. So it's I would compare this to somebody who's running a transportation, a shipping and receiving business. I pay for my trucks and I pay for my fuel, but I'm driving on public roads. So the public has some investment that's allowing me to do the things that I'm doing, and the same is true here of somebody who if they're attending a public university or even a private university in some cases, there are other donors who are making that institution possible. And there are, for public universities, there are, there are public support for those particular universities and those institutions. And if we're reading literature, that there, there is public investment in the infrastructure to make available things like the internet and things like uh, telephone systems that we can all use to communicate and that a lot of that is being subsidized or paid for entirely by public funds. So if you really start to consider the the scope of what's required to prepare an expert today, that there's a lot of public investment in all the infrastructure that makes that possible. If we're talking to K-12 teachers, we have a, a more a gray area, if you will. So there was a there was a phrase that um, was used in our discussion with Dr. Hallman a couple of months ago, uh, where she mentioned that if we're going to be a, uh, an effective teacher in the K twelve classroom, we have to be adepts in our content and also experts in curricular development. So how do I deal with if I'm a K twelve teacher? I may not have this deep scholarship background that might be true of higher education teachers. But I'm not a novice. So the the article, the Ed Week article, certainly makes clear that we need to make a distinction between our expertise and our opinions. And if we have opinions, then we need to be clear about that and that those very likely do not have a place in our classroom. But if we have expertise, we need to share that. How do I, as a K-12 teacher, deal with my particular level of specialization? Because it may not be as clear. That boundary between personal and informed scholarly opinions um, was, I think, the heart of the Ed Week article. Uh, the phrase intellectual humility was used to describe an expert identifying uh, what is it that I'm truly steeped in and authorized to share as a uh, commanding, respectable uh, perspective, as opposed to my other beliefs, which are personally grounded, but not as thoroughly um, researched or supported or developed at a mastery level. Well, that fundamental concept, that intellectual humility, where are the boundaries, where am I, where's my expertise, and where am I not an expert, is something that we should be aware of when we are, one, being political pundits, but also when we are exercising our authority in our classroom. And the classroom is a particularly important region for that because there's another article that was published um, again by Dr. Hess, who goes on about um, calling us to use the 2016 election as an opportunity to teach 
high school students about the democratic process and about elections, and she acknowledges that it's highly controversial, and so uh, teachers may be hesitant to engage in that topic, but high schools can be the very best opportunity for our students to learn about democracy, and that opportunity needs to be honored. So it's not just that we can be talking about it, but that we have an opportunity, uh, and with it a responsibility to leverage that opportunity. Ultimately, solving public problems, the efficacy for solving public problems is increased when citizens learn from each other. And one, a high school is a place of learning, one where the students are more aware socially of each other than they have been the entire time they've been in school. So it is an awakening of social relevance at that age group. So now we have an institution that is designed for learning where students are being more socialized, socially aware with each other than ever before. Furthermore, active discussions of controversial topics um, have shown that students' uh, civ civic skills, understanding of civic agency, uh, and confidence in approaching civic problems and engagement improves with uh, their practice in discussion. So in high school, if you can create a space where discussions can occur, and as teachers we have that authority, and the students come from uh, a wide diverse backgrounds, which in a, in a, depending on where your high school is, that is true and becoming more true as time continues, uh, then you'll have a space where the students are becoming socially aware, they are able to have discussions with each other, uh, and the discussions are by necessity stemming from dif uh, diverse backgrounds. So that's my proposition based on what I know from other articles. Uh, that's pretty good. I. I don't think I'm gonna be able to find it right now. There's a there was a reference just in the literature I read this morning. Uh, schools are not getting more diverse. Uh, there was a claim that um, they are becoming less diverse right now because um, because uh, real estate uh, so residential segregation is increasing, and so with gentrification, schools are not are are in fact not becoming more diverse. But I can't find that reference. So uh, actually, now that you said that, I'm going to have to backtrack because I also read that that was in the American Educational Research Association's fact uh, fact sheet regarding the impact of K-12 civic education on political participation. And uh, I, I totally forgot until you said it, but the polarization. So this is about the effect of polarization, our political polarization. Political polarization uh, affects political participation with negative con consequences. So what happens is polarization reduces uh, trust regarding the ability to make compromises. If we are polarized, we are unlikely to make a compromise. And so that results in self-segregation, uh, which leads to lack of socialization among different-minded people. And so as our schools become more segregated due to uh, growing divergences financially, those financial divergences contribute to political divergences, which contribute to polarization. So our classrooms are becoming more polarized, and uh, that results in a decrease in voter engagement. Yeah, that's a, and that, that's, a, that's something that I wanted to highlight from my article was it's an excellent opportunity, and the one that the reason that resonated with me the most was because navigating political problems, especially at that age, which is a 
prime time when students are formulating their concept of who they are socially and politically. And so as they engage with those ideas and form that self-concept for themselves, they can do it more effectively when they're in a more diverse setting. And the most diverse opportunity or the most diverse environment for many students is at school. So even if it's not as diverse as their community at large, it is usually more diverse than their family and friend circles or their more their self-selected social circles. The discussion of controversial topics of political issues is an effective tool for developing uh, student uh, political efficacy. And to address that, I have another response. Our classrooms should be political for students to allow them to collectively make decisions about how we ought to live together. Uh, it is imperative that teachers help students develop an ability to talk across political and ideological differences by teaching students to weigh evidence, consider comp competing views, form an opinion, articulate the opinion, and respond to those who disagree. This is again from the uh, the fact sheet. Do you have an example of that, right? So what do you what do you do for that? I do have an example of that, and this reading this these articles at this time really uh, put to rest some some of the fears that I was having in the back of my mind. Like, what am I doing in my classroom? Is this appropriate? Is this not appropriate? I think I think it was oh one of this podcast where we said one of, if not the primary goal of public education is to prepare responsible citizens. That is our number one goal. And so I'm in my classroom and I'm a science teacher and one of uh, the major topics in science that is somewhat controversial is climate change. Uh, but I, as a science teacher, uh, not just a science teacher, but someone who worked in a molecular genetics laboratory for seven years and has a degree, uh, I am an expert. I really understand the complexities of climate change, and so I did feel comfortable leveraging that expert in my classroom to confidently discuss it. That's one of the things. I can use my intellectual humility to recognize where I am strong and then devote space in my classroom to that, uh, and so I decided to do that. But I did it furthermore in a way where we modeled uh, a, a city having to do you enact a land use policy. So the city in this little in this little game the city was given a plot of land that was completely undeveloped and then the students had to decide how to use that land and all they had to discuss the benefits and costs of those decisions some of those decisions were beneficial to the uh, environment some of them were negative to the environment some of them were beneficial to the economy of the town some of them were negative for the economy of the town but they had to make a decision and through that we had to have a discussion of differing viewpoints supported by evidence uh, so that different opinions of different values were discussed uh, and a decision had to be reached. So after reading this, having done that activity, I felt so much better about how I used my classroom because <laughs> it was consistent with the ideas supported in this research. And there are plenty of opportunities to do that kind of thing. There's a, another option. If you, if you don't have a land use lesson plan ready, there's a simulation available for a fishery management where it can run all the data to simulate a, a common use 
fish population, and then students can fish from that population. And then during each round, they also choose to uh, formulate and enact policy and to govern and manage how people fish within that population. And then over time, they it is borne out whether or not that population collapses or not. And uh, the simulation mirrors natural processes really closely. And so it's pretty common for students to have the fishery collapse uh, and then have the conversations about which policies did they enact that helped, which ones didn't help, what could they have enacted retroactively that maybe could have prevented or prolonged uh, the collapse of that fishery. And so being able to use data to support and give provide feedback on the quality of their choices while they exercise judgment is a really important part of that. If you don't teach science, I had a formative experience as a senior in high school when I was a student uh, that I still remember and it was a, a really important moment for me and it was discussing a contentious election. So I was 18 at that time and we were having the election. It was a choice between uh, Kerry and Bush was the particular election. And uh, we were discussing the civic process in class, and the conversation uh, was becoming really intense. People were sharing, and in articulate ways, really closely held beliefs, and that we were really dialoguing back and forth as a class amongst ourselves. And we were coming to a place where people were trying to make references to um, to the beliefs of the candidates and their positions, and we were making some some uh, some attempts at referencing material that supports those claims. And we weren't really ready. And so, to his credit, my teacher. Stopped Stopped the conversation. He said, "Let's do this for real." He said, "Heck, whatever I have planned for the next week, we're gonna shut the, shut all that down, and we're gonna have a debate." He said, "We need we need two people who can just become experts on the candidates." And I got I was one of them. I got chosen to be one. I was uh, I was intending to vote for Bush at the time, and I was assigned Kerry. I was assigned John Kerry. I needed to emulate him. Uh, during a debate and then uh, so there were two people to enact that and then the rest of the class was writing questions and they had to have citations for where they believed the answers for those questions were going to be if I remember correctly and so the day the debate came, we videotaped it. Uh, the other candidate and I both dressed up like an like an approximation of what the candidates we believe what they were, were, would have looked like in that setting. And we did the debate, and it was amazing. And I remember as I learned more about uh, Kerry as a candidate, I was wrong about like ninety five percent of the policy that he was proposing. I had deep. Uh, ignorance of what he what he represented as an electoral option, and I remember being the most surprised I'd ever been to that point in my life at how little I knew. I couldn't believe how much I didn't know about the candidates. Uh, and that really formed a big piece of who I am even to this day uh, as I view the political process because, oh my gosh, I didn't know so much. Like I was really certain that Bush was the answer for X, Y, and Z, and that Kerry was wrong for W and and Q, and none of that was accurate. So providing the opportunity to reinforce, yes, this could be a contentious topic, but let's approach it responsibly, and let's approach it from this viewpoint of dialogue really gave me that shaping moment that is argued for in the articles. Okay, so from a practical standpoint, teachers say, yeah, sure, I should do these things. But there's an additional cost for some teachers that they're considering that we haven't discussed yet. 
So we have these excellent conversations in the classroom. Students are challenged to consider new points of view and new perspectives. And they go home and they share those new points of view and those new perspectives. And then we get a phone call that evening saying, why do my students, why do my children have these new viewpoints and perspectives? And that's a time cost that can get to be tremendous if you have a sufficiently motivated external stakeholder. So what do you say to the teacher who says, yeah, maybe we should do this, but that's going to come at an, a cost that I can't bear if I have some parents and some guardians and some external stakeholders coming at me after I try to provide this experience that soaks up all of my time for reflection and curricular preparation and feedback providing. And so my next month of instruction is going to suffer if I choose to have these two days of quality discussion and that cost of benefits not there. What do you say to a teacher that's having that kind of problem? If another teacher says that this goal of, of rhetorical public discourse is not a goal for me and my classroom and my students, then they should not spend extra time supporting it. We need to identify what our priorities are for our classroom, and then we need to identify what the research says about meeting those priorities, and then we need to change our practice in order to be aligned with the research to achieve those goals. It is okay for a teacher to say, this is not my priority and I don't want to sink time into it. Bullying them into doing that will, uh, the students will suffer, bottom line. Well, bullying them into it is bad, okay. It doesn't matter what it is or what, like we shouldn't be, sure, sure. But this should be a priority of K-12 teachers and high-end secondary teachers in particular. You and I say that because our top goal of public education is to pro 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 promote responsible citizenship. We're not the only ones who are saying that. They're experts in the topic who are writing pieces that we have just read who are saying that. Uh, then what kind of teachers do you want in your school? I believe your answer is actually an administrative decision. Your public school's goal is to promote responsible citizenship, then you should hire teachers where who pursue that goal in their classrooms. I think that's the answer to the question that I, that I was seeking. I think that's the answer is, if we accept that this is a priority and the parents are making it a burden, we have stipulated that it was a goal of the school. Right. So a should for this kind of thing is communication with your support system, with the administration, with the counselors, and with your department to ensure that if this happens, or rather when it happens, because if you do it long enough, you're going to have some parents who want to know a lot more about what's going on, then you have to ensure ahead of time that your administration's not surprised by your choices and that they have got your back so that they can help distribute some of this burden so that you can be involved in that conversation, but administration can take their visit to the building. Administration can explain the building priorities that justify your classroom choices so that you're not the only one engaging with that parent because if you're stuck on an island, you are in trouble. Choose your priorities. Yep. Understand the priorities of your school and your administration so that when you make that choice, you understand what's involved in that choice so you can commit to it and you can persevere through that experience. Yeah. Know what you're getting yourself into and you believe in it. Yeah. You should. You should engage with the political process, especially at the secondary level. Yeah. Because it is an opportune moment for your students to grow into the citizens we need them to be. You should 
plan for those choices with your administration, with your counselors, with your paras, with the rest of your department, so everybody understands why you're making the choices you're making, and you understand what support options will be available when there are concerned stakeholders. And then you should pursue those goals to the ends of the earth because they are worthy goals. Now we do other stuff. So for our second segment, we have another article that was uh, referenced to us on the website from, a, from one of our community members. And he asked us what we thought about a piece published in the LA Times uh, called What Students Know That Experts Don't. School is all about signaling, not skill building. And that's by Brian Kaplan. Uh, Brian Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's the author of The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. What's really interesting when I read this is that a lot of the precepts for his conclusion are things that I strongly agree with. And then... And so I was actually, uh, I was on the boat. I was reading his article saying, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And then fallacy. Like the last thing he said just blew me out of the water. Like how could he come to that? Uh, so let's clarify the title even to begin with. Uh, signaling versus skill building. So signaling is a reference to somebody providing indices that they are motivated or that they are diligent or that they are smart and so they, they are providing indicators that they are a desirable employee. And that's distinct from uh, a school system that is built for skill building, which is to say that somebody's competency is increasing over time. They have a growing schema, increasing mastery of uh, increasingly more complicated concepts or techniques. Uh, and so his title is intended to mean that we have not built an educational system that improves upon its participants. That instead we have built an educational system that sorts its participants. It identifies who is compliant and who is not. This article, he, he makes two quotes and one rings as so fundamentally true and one rings as so ignorantly false to me. And the first truth Socially speaking, though, the why of education is all important. I absolutely 100% resonate with that statement. And that's that when, when he got to that, I was just so happy about him. I was so happy about it. And then the next, educational austerity is the simplest path back to a, an economy in which serious on-the-job learning starts during high school, not after college. And I find that to be entirely terrible. And the reason why is that his fundamental purpose of education is to create employees. And back in 01, when we talked about the purpose of education and the philosophy of education, I evoked uh, Neil Postman, who was an education philosopher who passed away in the early 2000s. Uh, and he said that this is one of the greatest problems facing America's uh, education system is the fallacy and the trap that we begin to think that our purpose is to appease employers with our students. And it is not, nor should it be. There are lots 
of justifiable narratives for why education, public education, should exist. One of this author's quotes uh, at the very beginning, despite messages about school being a place to prepare for the workforce, students see it as a game. And the reason why students see it as a game is because they actually, they don't know what they're doing, but they see through the fallacy. And they don't have an alternative narrative. They don't have the, the Ralph and I here on this show over and over again talk about uh, public education's uh, purpose to promote responsible citizenship. That is a different goal than preparing employees. Now, his arguments are fine and consistent with a fallacy. And so people that purchase that fallacy are going to be influenced by this narrative. But I'm not in school to prepare a worker. I'm in school to prepare a citizen. And that citizen may find out that the right thing to do is not to work for that particular employee or do that particular job or to create something of their own or, you know, whatever. But it is not for the employment of my students that I am teaching. That happens to be a nice side effect of a well-educated individual, but it is not what I am there to do. Nope. Nope. Despite the fact that there are a number of object objectionable statements, and I'm being particularly evocative right now because I'm hoping that we can get a response, but you're wrong about a lot of stuff. But there are some things of value in here. So if we, even though there are plenty of things with which I disagree, there are some things that should be pursued in this article. Uh, for instance, school shouldn't just be a place for signaling. It shouldn't be a sieve with which we sort students, except. And there are some schools where that's true, where we're doing some subjects that are poorly connected to the real world, and that there are certainly improvements possible in how school, especially K-12 education, can improve the productivity of its students. So let's talk to the actual research. What do we know about productivity of K-12 education? Well, in 2008, so this is hot off the presses. Um, 18. Oh, yeah, even hotter. Uh, in 2018, I forgot what year I was, uh, Aaron K. Chatterjee, perhaps is how you pronounce that, of Duke University uh, published a uh, summary of uh, economic impacts of education, uh, specifically um, discussing and comparing uh, technology implication, implementation in education versus the returns of technology implementation, uh, implementation in other business domains. Uh, so contrasting them. Impetus for this uh, discussion that he wrote was because uh, since the late 90s, there have been rapid and significant changes in how business has been conducted in light of the information age that has dramatically changed that landscape. But uh, education, and to a lesser degree he mentioned uh, uh, medical technology and practice, has not been as responsive to those changes. So this uh, synthesis of the research base is to explore why that might be the case. So if we're going to talk about improving the productivity of K-12 education, there were a couple of um, points that got highlighted in this report, and one of them that I really liked because it resonates with one of our core principles on the show is that there are, there are two industries, education and healthcare, 
uh, where that factor mo feature most prominently in research on what's called the cost disease, which talks about um, how costs rise rapidly in industries, even though there's very limited or low productivity growth. And he mentioned that that's because the key services of those industries are particularly reliant on humans. And so if we've got an industry that's really dependent on the quality and expertise and responsiveness of the people who are delivering those services, then technology can't solve all the problems of that industry. It's a more complex relationship, and education is one of those. He pointed out that uh, research and development accounts for only a tiny share of the total expenditures in K-12 education. Uh, it's only about 1 50th, 1 over 5 zero, uh, the rate of most innovative industries. And that's despite the fact that overall spending on K-12 is approximately $600 billion a year, which is comparable to pharmaceuticals. This lack of expenditure means one, not as, and we're a podcast that's all about reading education research. One, there's less of it out there than there is in other comparable professions. That makes us sad, because we love it. That's one. Two, um, if changes are to be imposed, then the funding for that is not necessarily readily available. Consider, if teachers are to be supported with technology, if we're going to integrate, if I am going to integrate something to become a regular, reliable component of my classroom, then I should be masters of that technology. Using a tool poorly is, is terrible. You need the right tool for the right job, and you also need to use it the right way. So I need to become a master of new technology in my classroom, and doing so would involve significant investment in teaching those teachers. It turns out a two-hour in-service on how to use a new program or a new computer is not sufficient to get anyone to use that computer appropriately or effectively. Just as two hours of any particular concept or lesson in a classroom is not efficient to get a teacher or a student to learn or do anything effectively. They need practice, they need recurrence, they need consistency, and they need longevity with that. Uh, so this comes back to how do we provide tools and training that can get teachers from where they are to where they need to be and I could not believe this number in the report. 70% uh, of pre-K to 12 instructional content today is still printed material. The vast majority of equipment out there is still focused on textbooks. And I couldn't, I was shocked. I was shocked at that number. So the issue, I think, comes all the way back around to the original fallacious conclusion at which Brian Kaplan arrived was that this money is not giving us an ROI, a return on investment that is appropriate. We should just put this money back in our pockets, which actually doesn't solve any of the problems that he identified. Rather, we've got a gap in education research, and we know that effective implementation of technologies and techniques that do increase productivity require training and require um, investment for dissemination. So if we're trying to find a way to improve the productivity of K-12 education, which I accept that we should, then those resources need to be diverted to research-supported practices and techniques for dissemination and support. And we have some indications of what those might be, but we need to know more about what does and doesn't work, and then we need to support the things that do work. Uh, so the should 
is beyond discuss research. It's generated. And then be responsive to it. And then discuss it. Or at least cite it in your opinion piece if you're going to reference it. That would be a minimum. That'd be a good minimum. And now for something completely different. Man, we didn't even get into science as a special case. I know. Because that's what I want to, like, that matters to me. Because political controversy, should we, conservatism versus liberal, liberalism, like, that's just a debate. Like, that's just, that's just a philosophy. Right. Um, Scientific controversy is so much different because there are things that are socially controversial that are, that are not scientific. scientifically controversial. So I I have to believe that engage, like dealing with those controversies is different in meaningful ways. Well, I uh, I did, and I'm proud of myself as part of my um, climate change unit. The capstone discussion, the very last thing we did was. Why is climate change difficult to solve? And that is where we got the, and there were, you know, we basically had two branches for that solution. One, it is uh, logistically complex to solve it. And then two, people either do not, people do not accept it. And then we talked about why do people not accept it? And that's where we had the discussion. And we had it in, in terms of the solution. That is where we have the discussion. And so, um, well, if people don't believe it, they're not going to make any changes. Right. And so, that, I mean, we had it, and it was really good. And there, I had I had a student come to me the next day and said, when I discussed this with my, my grandpa and my mom and my dad, and they just said that grandpa, he said he didn't believe any of this stuff and that it's not real and it's not happening and we couldn't change it if we wanted to and there's nothing we could do about it. And my mom was saying that it was real. My dad didn't say anything. And... And I told them that he, I told them that he, of course, like he went to high school in the whenever, so they hadn't even know they didn't even start taking data until the fifties. And this is my my student telling, like they didn't even collect data until the fifties. So of course he didn't know anything about it because it's not something that they would have taught or discussed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, check that. And that was a student who transferred in um, in January, so she didn't get to be part of my like culture building of semester one and this was like the first time she raised her hand to say anything in the class and I was like well I mean she's doing retrieval and it's fine I don't know what is it like nah she crushed she's it she's there she's so there she That's was cool. so there it was cool I liked it a lot my uh, my favorite example of interaction is actually so I've got a student story but it kind of mirrors yours so whatever but the, I, I was sitting in a curriculum planning like stakeholder meeting uh, this was several years ago, as we were planning some new academic pathway. It's now in existence. It's a pathway that always has now. Uh, and I was sitting next to an industry stakeholder at my table uh, from the the gas industry. It might have been petroleum, but one of those, a fossil fuel industry representative. And we were sitting there, and we were we were talking through. We we're about halfway through the day, and we were talking about what students ought to know about uh, about climate change. And he made this this remark kind of off the cuff, and he's like, "Well, you know, they the the data, the research is still is still out. The research is still not clear about whether uh, climate change is anthropogenic." And I kind of stopped and looked at him, and I was like, "Well." what and he said well you know the reason you know and i was like here and like i had the research at hand and so like i i pulled it up i was like 
here are some graphs. You tell me what these graphs mean. And he's like, oh, and his response, and this is this is as close to a quote as I can get just in remembering. It's like, oh, well, I don't have the data on that, so I'm not an expert, so I don't know anything about that, but the research is unclear. And I was like, that sentence internally is inconsistent. Like, you can't both claim ignorance and claim a knowledge of the research. And I literally just stared at him, my mouth agape for a moment. I was like, I... It's not unclear. Like, it... I'm showing it. Like, it's on the screen in front of you right now. Like, there it is. Look at it. And he kind of begged off of it, and we... we I dropped it. I, I dropped it. I did. Uh, but that kind of disengagement with the topic to remain opposed to an argument is fundamentally different than the philosophical differences between how should we run as a collective of humans. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I leveraged early, early, early in the school year, and I pay it off so much second semester, is um, the journey of observation inferences, prior knowledge. Offer, uh, observations, prior knowledge, to make explanatory inferences. We, we spent so much time in that space in the early semester, first semester, so that when we get to second semester, the way I introduce climate change is saying, hey, uh, you know, you guys have heard about climate change. We're going to talk about some climate change, and we're going to start by looking at the observations that scientists have made, and then you are going to tell me what the most reasonable inferences are with those science things. So they go through the process. I invite them specifically to do what you said that guy wouldn't. Here is the data. How can you interpret this? And then here is another data set. How can you interpret this? And most importantly, how might these trends be connected to each other? Because those interconnecting relationships is the foundation. And that takes time. That takes a lot of time. Uh, and you've got to be willing to let your kids go through and struggle and make interpretations that don't make sense and then argue with each other and then reinterpret and then mm -hmm. try to create a narrative that is consistent. And um, it's uncomfortable because you've got to have a lot of graph interpretation skills, so you got to spend time on that. And these graphs are weird. They are not – they don't like the – the average zero, well, why is the average zero? That doesn't make any sense. How did the average become zero? Well, we got standardized. You have to talk about that. Um, but those kinds of skills are the scientific practice skills that we that we already must be doing. So absolutely. it's it's not about doing controversy in isolation. Like, oh, right. I got to pay a week out of my curriculum to do nothing but controversy. It's nested within yes, it is. part of what we're already doing. So when we get to democratic process... You should include the consideration of controversy yep. while you're talking about nature of discourse and while you're talking about structure of government. And, and providing what, evidence for arguments. Exactly. So so it's about finding those opportunities in your curriculum where it already exists yeah. and then doing it well when the opportunity prevents, presents itself. Yeah. That's pretty good. I think This is going to be the outtake segment. This is going to be our third segment right here. It's just it's outtake. <laughs> Have it. I didn't like any of that. How was the beer? 
this is certainly a milk stout. So this one, this came uh, recommended to me. I know it's affiliated with uh, the Boulevard Brewers. I don't know the exact relationship. I don't know if they're a subsidiary or what the deal is. Uh, but Firestone is has a relationship with Boulevard. And this is a pretty prototypical milk stout. Uh, they're not really? my favorite. Pasos Robles, California? Really? They have an association? That's what I was told wow, okay. by the proprietor. Yeah, I, don't I don't know anything about it. One person told me that, so I got that's that's what I know. I have an anecdote, uh, but it's a I don't know. It's fine. It's smooth. It's easy to drink. It was gorgeous when you poured it. That's what I knew about it. It's true, it's true. Uh, smooth and easy to drink. I think is some key qualities to this. Uh, it's it's not super thick. It man, I don't have anything to add. It's easy to drink. It's not super aromatic. It's not super malty. It's a it's a very gentle stout. Is that how I would describe it? Yeah, I prefer a little more uh, body because it has girth to it. Like it has it. It feels like I can feel it in my mouth, but uh, I prefer a little more uh, malt. Is really I think the flavor that I want a little more in it. Um, but that but that's inconsistent with how milk stouts work. So uh, another quality is that uh, sometimes stouts, uh, especially darker stouts, have this sort of like a little acidity to them. They kind of have like this tiny hint of burn but um i think what contributes to the smoothness of this is the nitro and that mm. it is much less acidic than a carbonated uh than carbonation so uh it it is uh it's pretty nice yeah so if you like milk stouts or nitro or nitro brews then you're really going to like this one because it does those things well, we really appreciate you listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to go on twopintplc.com and give us some feedback. Uh, tell us what research we should be talking about. Tell us what we missed and what we should consider next time uh, so we can be responsive to you because responsiveness is something that's important to us. Tell us what we got wrong so that we can edit, revise, and improve and become better, not just teachers, but podcasters. Yeah. We're also on Twitter and uh, we post on Reddit more often now, so give us some feedback over there also. Otherwise, discuss research. And struggle well.